Church, it's an absolute privilege for me to be standing here sharing God's word with you. Before I start, let's pray. Father, thank you very much for this morning. Thank you very much that you are with us. Thank you very much, Lord, that our hearts are prepared. Our hearts are, our hearts are ready to receive you. We've been receiving you the whole morning, and we are ready for your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that the word convicts us and doesn't condemn us. I pray that the Lord, the word settles in our heart so we live here better than when we came here, Lord. If nothing else is achieved this morning, Lord, let the glory go to Christ. If we only achieve glory going to Christ, that's more than enough. We thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the last two weeks, Wama Guarela shared with us from the book of 2 Timothy. He opened with a scripture from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, which reads as follows. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul felt it was important to tell Timothy that all scripture is indeed God-breathed. Scripture is a compass that gives us direction. And when we lose our way, scripture is there to reprove, which means to reprimand us. And not only does it reprimand us, it also shows us the right way to go. Scripture corrects us and sets us back on the right path. Are we together, church? I think he shared this, this slide. I'm borrowing from him without his permission. He showed we are going on a path. Then scripture is there to reprove, to correct us and set us back on the path. Are we there? So, if scripture is there to help us get back on the path, it is extremely important that we understand scripture. Are you guys with me? If we don't understand the scripture, how will it be able to, to reprove? How will scripture be able to set us on the right path? Comprehending the context is very, very important. We need to read the Bible to understand the context of what we are reading so that we are not left with incorrect biblical principles. Language is very important. Are we together, church? If we miss the context of the language, we will miss God's truth in his word. Do you agree? When I was much younger, and we only had three TV channels, there was a TV program called Mind Your Language. <laughs> Those who remember it, please don't put up your hand. <laughs> You'll give away your age. Anyway, it was a comedy centered around Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown was an English teacher who was teaching basic English to non-English speaking adults. One day, an elderly Indian lady who was a student rushed into the class. She was huffing and puffing, clearly looking distressed and disturbed. Mr. Brown asked her, what is wrong? She said, 
there's somebody running around the schoolyard barefoot. Running around the schoolyard barefoot, Mr. Brown said. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with somebody running around the schoolyard barefoot. And she said, he was barefoot up to here. You see, family, understanding the context is very important. And not grasping the context will lead to misunderstandings. Luckily for us, we serve a God who will make everything work together for our good. Romans 8, verse 28. Isn't that right, family? We serve a gracious and merciful God filled with unfailing love, a God who forgives inequity, rebellion, and sin who has tossed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7. And thus, only God can judge us. Don't judge me, lest you be judged. Matthew 7, 1. Lastly, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst with them. Matthew 18, 20. So because we are more than one or two in here, the Holy Spirit is with us. Isn't that reassuring, church? How many times have we heard these scriptures being recited? We should know them by now. Family, believe it or not, and this touches on what Dr. Matibula was saying, not everything that I've just said now, everything that I've just said now is a complete lie. It's quoted out of context. You see, by omitting one or two words and not reading the context of the scripture, we grasp on the wrong principle. So for the sake of time, I only chose these four scriptures. There's a lot more common ones that we use in church that we misquote and misapply completely. And we do that as believers. I do it too. Because when the pastor preaches, some of us don't go home and read the context of the scripture. Let's rewind. Romans 8, verse 28, doesn't say God will make everything work out for our good. It does not say that. That is not the principle at all from that scripture. Let's read it together. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. So according to the scripture, there's a pre-qualification for us to say he will make that thing work out to my good. There's a pre-qualification. What is the pre-qualification? We must love God. And we must do things according to the purpose that we are called to. If we read on in verse 29, it says, those who love the God are called according to his purpose and they were pre-chosen and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let me stop there. So do you see where we misquote that scripture? Exodus 34, 6 to 7, we'll get to that a little bit later. We'll unpack it thoroughly. Only God can judge me. Don't judge me, lest you be judged. We often miss the context completely. Some Christians use this to escape accountability. Instead of John humbling himself and listening to loving, righteous correction from a fellow Christian, I say, don't judge me, only God can judge me. Jesus said to the authorities in John 7, verse 24, 
Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. God never condemns unfair, self-righteous, and hypocritical judgment. Such judgment tears others down. Do we agree, church? Such judgment tears others down. Righteous judgment, however, is given in love to help build others up. So it is biblical to judge your brother as long as you're judging from a righteous position and you're judging to build, not to tear down. Are we together? So let's not get, let's not get it twisted like this guy and his tattoo. Only judge can guard me. Lastly, let's quickly look at what Matthew 18.20 is all about. It reads, Where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. We often use this scripture at the beginning of prayers. I normally do it. Family, this does not relate to church meetings at all. This scripture has nothing to do with prayers, has nothing to do with Christians fellowshipping. This was instruction from Christ strictly to help the church deal with conflict between Christians, conflict between brothers and sisters. It has nothing to do with if we are two, then God is with us. But if I'm alone, it means God is not with us. God is always with us. So let's not misquote this scripture. It's about conflict resolution and nothing else. All right, I'll stop there. There are many more. I won't go any further. Family, I had to give this detailed uh, introduction to this morning's message so that we understand how critical it is that we examine scriptures this morning. And every other time we read the Bible, we need to examine the scripture, understand its context. Today, I will need us to study the scriptures and understand so that we don't miss what God wants us to digest today. No misinterpretations, right? No barefoot up to here. We are together. Our message this morning is simply called What was in the cup? What was in the cup? What cup? Let's go to Psalms 75 verse 8. For a cup of his wrath is in the hand of the Lord. For a cup of his wrath is in the hand of the Lord. And the wine foams. It is well mixed and fully spiced. And he pours it out from it. And all the wicked of the earth must drain it and drink it down to its dregs. So there was a cup. And this cup was filled with God's wrath. Some versions say it was filled with fury and God's judgment. This cup is in God's hand. And all the wicked from the earth must drink it down to its dregs. Meaning down to the sludge at the bottom. Down to the sediment at the bottom. Down to the residue at the bottom. To understand what was in this cup, we need to understand two things. We need to understand what is sin, and we need to understand what are the attributes of God. Are we together, church? So Paul in Romans really gives us a rich insight into what sin is. We'll only look at Romans 1, 18 to 29. Let's start at 18. For God does not overlook sin, and the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness suppress and stifle the truth. So Paul is saying God does not overlook sin. He also says men and women in their wickedness suppress truth. Which truth is he talking about? Let's read on. Verse 19. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. We know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to us. So Paul is saying the wicked know the truth but choose to suppress it. Choose to ignore it. Choose to stifle the truth. Verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't worship him as God. Or give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. 22. Claiming to be wise, instead, they became utter fools. So firstly, what is Paul saying? We suppress the truth about who God is. Then we act like we don't see his qualities. We act like we don't see his divinity. We don't acknowledge his ever-living power. Then we stop worshipping him and we stop giving thanks to him. And all this has sprung up from us suppressing the knowledge of God in our lives. So when we suppress the knowledge of God and his truth in our lives, these things start springing up. Verse 22 says, we claim to be wise outside God's truth, but in fact, outside God's truth, we are utter fools. Verse 23, instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Instead of worshipping and marveling at God, they created images to look at and marvel at. Church, sin loves God's substitutions. Sin does not like anything that is linked or that is related to God. These things could be money, possessions, TV shows, career relationships. Please note, there's nothing wrong with these things. As long as we don't, they don't take our attention from God. If we start losing touch with God, with his majesty, with his power, with his awesomeness, with his truth, because we, we are getting diverted into all sorts of things that he has blessed us with anyway, that's where the problem starts. Are we together, church? We read... The wicked are people who thought they are smart and they use these things to replace the relevance of God in their lives. 
Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their own hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, abandoning them to the degrading power of sin. Why did God do this? Here it comes again. Don't miss it, church. Verse 25. Because by choice, we made the choice, right? Because by choice, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Why is Paul repeating himself? Because, church, this is vital. Life outside God's truth leads down a very, very dark path that we don't want to go on. But we don't see it. It's a dark path filled with immorality and depravity. And this path we enter by choice by just making one foolish choice to ignore God's truth. Anything that is not linked to God, anything that does not resonate with God's truth, when we open up the door, little by little, it doesn't change us overnight. It's a slow fade. It happens slowly. But when we open the door on a daily basis, little by little, these things that don't align to God, they start influencing us and influencing us, and language changes and terminologies changes, and we start being okay with things. Are we together, church? And we slowly, even as Christians, we slowly slip away. To Paul's point, I have a short one-minute video that I would like to show you. Are we ready, bless? Satan will change the name of sin to make sin adaptable to accept. So instead of changing our ways, we will change the wording. Instead of pedophilia, we'll call it minor attracted people. Instead of sexual exploitation, let's call it adult entertainment. Instead of sex cults where we bump and grind, we'll just call them music clubs. Instead of cults, we'll call them clubs. Instead of adultery, we'll call it swinging and open marriages. Instead of mental illness, let's call it gender dysphoria. Instead of gender mutilation, let's call it gender transitioning. Instead of fornication, let's call it intimacy. Instead of lust, let's call it love. Instead of calling it a spiritual battle of good and evil, let's call it political. Let's call it a, a phobia. Let's call it hate speech. Call it something else. We are not called baby killers. We're called abortionists. It's no longer sin. It's a complex. It's an addiction. It's in a disorder. It's an obsession. So we don't feel bad about our sins. We change the name of them. And when we hear the truth preached, we feel conviction, but we condemn the preacher as hate speech. Deep church. We need to guard our minds. We need to guard what we put into our heads. Satan's schemes are there. Satan's schemes are there to trick us. Let us not be fooled. Let us stick to God's truth. Let's move on. Verse 26 and 27. Paul again repeats that God gave the people up to their own vile and unnatural desires. Again, 
as if Paul is saying, I know they won't get this. He again repeats himself for the third time in verse 28. It is because they did not see it fit to acknowledge God or consider him worth knowing as their creator. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are improper and repulsive. This is why people do what they do. God gave them up to their passions, to their lusts, because they made a choice not to adopt God's truth as a light for their lives. Verse 29, until they were filled, permeated and saturated with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, mean-spiritedness, they are gossips, spreading rumors. I'll stop there. You can read the rest of the chapter. It, it is not pretty. So family, Paul has said a mouthful. From the text, we can deduce two things. There is sin, and there are things that flow from sin, which is sinning. So they sin and they're sinning. Next slide, please, please. Sin is like a tree. Any feeling, thought, speech, action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all things, the heart that suppresses the truth about God, that is sin. Now, this tree, which is sin, produces the fruit, which is sinning. What is the fruit? That's what we read from verse 29 to the end of the chapter. I won't read the fruits of this tree. But it's not a pretty sight. And this happens when we ignore the truth about God in our lives. One preacher defines sin as follows. Glory of God, not honored. Holiness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The promises of God, not believed. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The wrath of God not feared. This is sin, family. So like Paul, I'm going to repeat as we recap. Sin is us choosing not to acknowledge God's truth in our lives. Suppressing that truth. Sinning are the things that flow from our lives because we have rejected that truth. Are we together? Amen. The amen's a bit low. Are we together? Yeah. Okay. All right. No condemnation, only conviction, right, church? Yeah. Amen. There's something very important that we skimmed over in verse 18. Let's go back there. Paul said, for God does not overlook sin. Earlier on, we said, Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, we serve a gracious and merciful God. 
filled with unfailing love, a God who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin, who has tossed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now Paul says that same God does not overlook sin. What does Exodus 34 really say? Verse 6. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive inequity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. So yes, God forgives inequity, immorality, wickedness. And yes, he, rebel, he, he excuses or he forgives rebellion and sin. But he does not excuse the guilty. God says he lavishes or he, he smothers us with unfailing love to a thousand generations. Yet in the same breath, he says, he will lay the sins of the parents upon their children up to the third and fourth generation. How is this possible? How is it possible? How, how can he be on both sides? Psalm 32 verse 1, David says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Church, this is a proper dilemma. How can a just and fair God forgive our rebellion and our sin, yet in the same breath, not excuse the guilty. Not excuse the sinner. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 23, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. 1 John 1 verse 8, If we claim to have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. If we claim to have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Isaiah 53 verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have strayed. Not some of us, not the politicians, not the murderers, not people who do despicable things. All of us, like sheep, have strayed. We have left God's path to follow our own. We have all sinned, church, and we have fallen short of God's glory. Listen to this, Proverbs 17, verse 15. Acquitting the guilty, acquitting the guilty, and condemning the innocent, both are detestable, detestable to the Lord. What does that mean? Letting the guilty go free and putting blame on the innocent. These two things are not acceptable to God. It is against God's just and fair nature to let the guilty go free or put blame on the innocent. 
but why and how does he do it? So God's cup was full of his wrath, his judgment and, fu- and fury. We were the ones to drink from the cup. And even if we drank from the cup, we are so unworthy, we have fallen short so much of God's standard that the justice requirements of God would not be met. If we were to do it ourselves, we would not be able to settle the debt. We couldn't pay the debt. Church, I'm here to tell you, we were without hope. We were utterly hopeless. Then in stepped Jesus. I don't think you're hearing me. Then in stepped Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 10. Those who depend on the Lord to make them right with God are under his curse. For scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. We will not obey all the commands of the law. Therefore, we are cursed. Am I right, church? To understand what cursed means, we need to understand what being blessed is. Because being blessed is the opposite of being cursed. There's a section in Matthew 5, verse 3 to 12, called the Beatitudes. This tells us what being blessed is all about. Then we'll be able to juxtapose and see what being cursed really means. Next slide, please. Being blessed is to have access to God's kingdom. Being blessed is to have access to God's kingdom. Being cursed means to be barred from God's kingdom. Being blessed is to be comforted by God when you are mourning. Being cursed is to be forever exposed to God's fury and God's judgment. Being blessed is to inherit the land. Being cursed is to be cut off from the land. Being blessed means you are satisfied when you are thirsty and when you are hungry. Being cursed means you are left hungry and miserable. Are we there, church? Being blessed means you receive God's mercy. Being cursed, you are thrown out without pity. The blessed shall 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 see God. The cursed are kicked out from his presence. The blessed are called sons and daughters. The cursed are disowned. That's what being cursed means. I wouldn't want to be cursed. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. For anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed in the sight of God. Jesus, the one who was blameless, became what? He became a curse. He became a curse. He stood in a substitute for us. He chose to drink from that cup on our behalf. 
Why would Jesus do this? Why would he do such a thing? There's a famous, famous theologian called Dr. Sproul. He attempted to describe a conversation that might have happened between God and Jesus. He wrote the following, I quote, The Son of God on that tree, perfect, spotless Son of God, the Lamb of God on that tree, when he looked up into the heaven and cried out, My God, my God, you have forsaken me. Why have you forsaken me? Bearing the guilt of his people, the Father slammed the gates of heaven and cried down to him, The Lord, the Lord damns you. These words were meant for us. The Lord damns you. And then upon him, all curses of the covenant breakers fell upon him. Then God said to Jesus, these are the curses. The Lord sends upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly. The Lord strikes you with madness and blindness and with bewilderment of heart and you will grope at nothingness as the blind man gropes in darkness with none to save you. The Lord delights over you to make you perish and destroy you and you will be torn from the land. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the fields. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The heavens which is over your head should be bronze and the earth which is under your feet iron. You shall be a proverb, a terror, a taunt among the people. Quoting directly from Deuteronomy, let all these curses come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes. But Jesus did. Jesus did keep all the commands of the Lord. All this should have fallen upon us, not on him. The justice of God extending its hand, pointing its finger to condemn us. But yet, Jesus turned the hand towards the cross. Again from Deuteronomy, Christ bore our sins upon Calvary. He was cursed as a man who makes an idol and sets up in secret. Jesus was cursed as one who dishonors his mother and father, who moves his neighbor's boundary mark and misleads the blind person on the road. Jesus was cursed as one who distorts justice due to a foreigner, an orphan, or a widow. He was cursed as one who is guilty of every manner of immorality, of perversion. He was cursed as one who wounds his neighbor in secret and accepts a bribe to strike down the innocent. He was cursed as one who does not confirm, conform to the words of the law. Family, this is God's wrath. This is what was in the cup. Our big brother, the firstborn of creation, our savior, 
our Lord, our Messiah. He said, I understand the curse and I will drink from the cup. I will drink from the cup on their behalf so that I wouldn't be in heaven without them. I will become the curse so they don't have to be separated from, from you any, lo any longer, Father. As Christians, we casually say, Jesus died for our sins. That's how we are saved. Please don't think of him dying for our sins as the Roman soldiers beating him up for a few hours and then hanging him on a cross. Please understand that he became a curse. He was crushed and trampled on by his own father. He drank the whole cup of God's wrath. Right down to the sediments. Right down to the bottom. On our behalf. He was the perfect substitute. In Matthew 26 verse 39, Jesus said, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Even at the peak of the suffering, he still submitted to God's will. He paid for every single one of our sins. The only covenant keeper who walked on this earth carried the guilt of all the covenant breakers. Our curse fell upon him. Church, this act of love is amazing. We often say Jesus is the pure, blameless lamb. These actions are not of a cute little lamb. These actions are actions of a giant. These are actions of a champion, a victor, someone who deserves all the glory. Are you with me, church? These are not some cute actions. This is amazing, amazing love that was shown for us so that heaven wouldn't be without us. We need to exalt his name. Just like we did this morning, we need to exalt his name. Those who believe in faith and who believe in him by faith are justified, meaning they are considered righteous and legally sons and daughters of God. We don't get justified by our own good deeds, our charitable works, how many people we help, how many schools we build. Some people say, I'm a good person. When I die, God will weigh up all my good deeds versus my bad deeds, and I'll be fine. Church, this is proud, boastful garbage. That stems from a heart seeking alternative truths to God's truth. That's what we read in Romans 1, verse 21. Church, we become justified only when we accept by faith what Jesus did for us. The righteousness of Christ gets put on us and God sees sons and daughters when he looks at us because Jesus paid it all. This giant paid it all. 
He loved you so much. He loved me so much. Earlier on when we sang that song um, and we said, I won't let anybody praise you. I won't let anybody worship you for me. How could I? How could I let anybody else worship Christ for me given what he has done for me? This giant, this champion. Uh, As the worship team comes up, You know, I don't like TV adverts because I feel scammed. They will say something to appeal to a part of me to make me buy their item. And if I don't fall for it for the first time, they know if I keep watching and I keep hearing it many times, I'll most likely start liking their product. Church, this is not one of those moments. This is a serious and personal moment for everyone sitting here. This is not time to make emotional decisions. This is a time to recognize whether God is speaking to you directly and for you to respond appropriately. Jesus did not make a song and dance when he invited people to follow him. He simply said, repent and follow me. This is what I'm saying to you this morning. If you have never made a decision to follow Christ or you feel you have gone astray and this morning you hear a voice in your heart saying, my son, my daughter, repent and follow me. By faith, let me drink that cup for you. That cup that is filled with my father's wrath because of your own immorality, let me drink it for you. In a few moments' time, I would like you to come to the front. We are going to celebrate you. We are going to humiliate. We have a few brand new Bibles that we'll be giving to you. After the service, we will assign an appropriate ministry leader, given your age. If you're in design, we'll make sure that design leader speaks to you, connects you with design, reflect the prayer ministry, depending on your age. We're going to make sure that This decision that you make, we walk with you. And if it's a decision that you made a long time ago and you feel you have strayed, we're going to bring you back to the path. At this moment, if there's anyone who said, today I want to follow Jesus, please stand and come to the front. Don't be shy. If there's anyone who says, today I want to follow Jesus, I'm very glad. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Lord, for this sobering message. Indeed, we are grateful for your word that reproves, corrects, and equips us for all good works. This morning, we thank you, Jesus, for this amazing love that you have for us, love that we cannot explain. Preachers all over the world struggle to articulate this type of love that you have for us. Words fail. Lord, words fail. All we can do is worship you and lift your name on high 
and say, you are holy. Lord, you are holy. Our hearts cry out to you. We cry out from a position of contentment because we have all decided we, we are following you. We are all trusting your word that will bring us back to the path. And we are all grateful that we will never grow thirsty because you are with us. As unworthy as we are, Lord, you decided to drink from the cup for us. We thank you, Lord. Words fail us. We thank you in the mighty, gigantic name of this champion that we call our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen, church. Thank you.